We do praise you, Father, for the truths we get to sing, we get to study today, the truths we read about in your word, the truth that's about to be declared here. We praise you for your greatness, for the absoluteness of those truths, for the glory that we get just a small taste of as we spend this time together on the Lord's Day. We thank you for the gathered church, uh, not just here but around the world, Lord, those that are worshiping you around the world on the Lord's Day. And we pray that uh, your Spirit might empower your people to accomplish the task that you've called us to. Even we pray that for uh, this small body here on Bees Ferry Road. Do your work in our lives. Build us to be your church so that we might be the salt and light in this neighborhood and around the world that you've called us to be. Lord, for you are the one who brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May we shine that light as we go, as we do, as we share, as we love others. We're here today because we need you. We do realize in you our hope is found, and apart from you there is no hope. So, Father, give us Give us faith to see beyond what's going on in the various circumstances of our lives right now. And because this is a dark world, and we live in a dark place. Crisis after crisis of war and terrorism and immorality, sin upon sin and pain and suffering going on in the lives of people around the world. Lord, use us as your people not to be a part of the problem but to provide an answer. Give us strength to do that even when it gets darker. Lord, we know there are individuals in our, our, our body here who are struggling, suffering, some uh, emotionally, some spiritually, some physically. We pray that you would meet their needs, those that are homebound, that want to be here and can't be here, that you would touch them today. We particularly pray for Ann Wellman in her upcoming surgery, Lord. Give the doctors wisdom as they take care of her. And, Lord, meet her needs as you promised you would. Continue, Father, to do your work in our lives, to bind us together with your love, to set our priorities right and focus on you and you alone. As we hear your word, we thank you for your word, the truths of your word and the power of your word. And may that power be sensed in and through our preacher this morning and that you would touch him and open his mouth and open our hearts to the truths that he declares to us this day. For to you alone be all the glory. Amen. invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
We'll look uh, this morning at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. We won't cover the entire passage exhaustively this morning. We'll, we'll zero in on sort of one issue and come back to some others next week. I'll read it for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord for us today. I'm going to ask you a question. What frightens you? What are you afraid of? I'm going to let you think about it for five seconds. What frightens you? What things cause fear to begin to well up inside of you? Oh, you you don't get afraid of anything? Are you invincible people or something? Ah, failure is a good one. Anarchy. That's worth being afraid of. I'm afraid of spiders. I hate them. I hate them. Spider shows up, it can be the size, I mean, the size of a tic-tac. And I run and scream like a five-year-old girl, no doubt, to get my wife to kill him. I don't like spiders. In fact, I don't like bugs in general, particularly those big flying roach things that we have around here. Those of you from New York, you didn't have those in New York, did you? Yeah, welcome to Charleston. Beware. Sitting in your living room, just watching TV, minding your own business, and all of a sudden from up in the ceiling comes a flying missile at your head, making an awful noise that they only make. They don't bite. They don't do anything. They just, they're just gross. That's the only one I'll get this morning, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm scared of those things. I hate them. They terrify me. I see one flying, and it just makes me jump, makes me run. Are you afraid of things? Those are silly things, right? Bugs, spiders. A lot of silly things that we are afraid of, little silly fears that we have. And all of us have them, right? You've got those little silly things that frighten you. They're probably, when you think rationally about it, shouldn't, right? I mean, what's a spider going to do to me? What's a, what's a flying cockroach going to do? Nothing. You could squish them. It's not rational fear, It's just, but it's still, it's still fear. There are all kinds of little silly things that frighten us, but... There are also serious things that frighten us, right? Things that we wouldn't laugh about, things that we wouldn't joke about. Anarchy is a serious thing. Failure is a serious thing. All sorts of things frighten us. Fear can be silly, but it can also be a crippling thing for people. There are folks who simply won't step outside of the home because they're terrified of all sorts of things. It can cripple a life. But regardless of what degree we experience, or to what degree we experience these kinds of fears, silly or serious, there is 
one particular kind of fear that the Bible places tremendous emphasis on. A kind of fear that is both real and rational. It's called the fear of God. It's a major issue when you look throughout the Scriptures. You'll find references to the fear of God from from Genesis all the way through to Revelation at the end. It's referred to all the time in the Psalms. It's referred to often in Proverbs. It's the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament speak about the fear of God. The Gospels... Acts, all throughout the the Old and New Testament, is this theme or this thread of the fear of God. And time and time again, the Bible makes it very clear that if you ignore the fear of God, you do so to your own destruction and to your own peril. In fact, the Bible makes the argument that fear, the fear of God is an absolute command and requirement for everyone. It's not an optional assignment. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, an Old Testament passage. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Now, that's a simple question, right? What does the Lord require from you? What is it that the Lord wants from you? What is the first thing he says? To fear the Lord your God. To work in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We're familiar with thinking of walking in his ways and loving him and serving him. But what about fearing him? You get to Matthew chapter uh, 10, verse 28 in the New Testament, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says to them, listen, don't fear those who can kill your body but are unable to kill your soul, but rather what? Fear him who's able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Don't fear people. Fear God. Peter is going to teach us this same lesson in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with what? With fear throughout the time of your exile. And we could go on and on this morning pointing out passages just like those all throughout the Old and New Testament. And you would find that the the issue of the fear of God is a command to be obeyed. And if you don't fear God, you're sinning. And I'm going to make the argument this morning that a person who lives and breathes the air on this earth and refuses to fear God is not only sinning, but they're a fool. An absolute fool. If that's you this morning, I don't intend to insult you. I'm using biblical language. The Bible says that the one who refuses to acknowledge and fear God is a fool. I hope to show you that this morning. But this is not just a message this morning about about fearing God if you're an unbeliever, because Peter brings up the issue in the context of writing to Christians. And he's speaking to Christians about living in fear throughout the days of our exile. And Matthew, Jesus was speaking to his believing disciples, telling them, listen, you need to fear God. Paul makes the argument in Romans chapter 3 that the, that the lack of the fear of God is actually the root of all sorts of sin. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. He says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. That's a pretty bad picture, isn't it? 
pretty bad picture of pretty bad behavior. But when he gets to verse 18, he explains to us why they behave that way, the people to whom he's describing. Why? Why do people do that kind of stuff? Why do people live that way? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. People lie and people cheat and people steal and people are ugly and people turn aside and they devise evil and they have throats that are an open grave and their tongues are used to deceive and their mouths are full of curses and venomous speech. Why? Why do they do that? Because they don't fear God. They don't fear God. Do you remember on the cross when Jesus was hanging there, there were two there were two criminals and one of them was taunting the Lord Jesus on the cross do you remember what the other one said to him? A, a, a godless man in, a, in and of himself. What does he say to his friend? He says, don't you fear God? If you feared God, you wouldn't speak like that. Justifies what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3. People sin because they don't fear God. People lie because they don't fear God. People give in to all sorts of various lusts and, and, and avail to themselves to all sorts of sinful lifestyles at the bottom of it. Because they simply don't fear God. Fearing God, the Bible pictures or paints for us, is only reasonable. It just makes sense to fear God. And it's illogical to not. Now, a lot of Christians don't understand this because I find within Christian circles, our view of God is far too small. We don't fear God because we don't understand rightly who He is. We've painted our own picture of, of who we think God is, and we've sort, of, we've sort of filtered him down to a docile God who is not worthy of our fear. David Wells writes in his book, God in the Wasteland, this. He says, all too often the churches turn to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We've turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He's a God for us. For our satisfaction. Not because we learn to think of him this way through Christ, but because we've learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. You see, in the marketplace, everything is for us. It's for our pleasure, for our satisfaction. And we've come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. And if the sunshine of his benign grace fails to warm us as we expect... If he fails to shower prosperity and success on us, we'll find ourselves unable to believe in him anymore. The point Wells is making is we worship a God often that we make up in our own minds, not the real God who is. And the argument he continues to make is the argument the Apostle Paul makes and the the, the argument that Peter is going to make, that if you're going to worship God, you need to worship the God who is, not a God who you make up. And a God who isn't worthy of fear is a made-up God, not the real one. The psalmist writes this. Listen. Listen to what Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They, They have mouths and they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. The psalmist is writing about God in 
contrast to the made-up false gods, false idols of his day. And he makes the argument that made-up gods are foolish gods. And that people who make up gods end up like the gods that they make up. Worthless, foolish, empty. If we're going to ever come to a right understanding of the fear of God, we've got to understand who God truly is. Not the made-up, docile sort of a version of God that we like to think about. You see, because when we encounter the one true living God, the natural response of any rational human being is fear. Fear. Let's look at a few men in Scripture who encountered the one true living God. And you tell me how they responded. Let's go to the Old Testament and look at Isaiah first. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah encounters Almighty God. And you know what his response was? His response in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 was this. It was to fall on his face before God and to say, Woe is me, for I am an unclean man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people who are unclean. He was terrified. And he understood his uncleanness and his smallness. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, after having described to us this vision of God that he had seen, he says this, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Why do you think Ezekiel fell on his face when he saw God? He was terrified. In Mark chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, you may recall the context here. Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountaintop with him. And he's, there's a plan that's going to take place, and these three guys are going to witness it. Jesus, you know, goes up on the mountain, and there he's transfigured before their eyes, and they see a glimpse of his unrestrained glory, and Moses and Elijah in some mystical sort of a way come for a visit, and they have a little chat, and Peter, James, and John are looking at this thing and watching it, and you can only imagine what must have been going through their minds when they saw that. Peter, who we all love, right? Because he's never at a loss for saying something, even if it's stupid. Says to Jesus in Mark 9, 5, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. (laughs) That's an understatement, right? Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And listen, I love this. Why is he saying all that? Well, he didn't know what to say. Why? He was terrified. He was absolutely horrified. You ever been so terrified your mouth just starts running and you have no idea what you're saying? It makes no sense. Do you do that? Some people, when they get afraid, they just just start blabbering. That's what Peter was doing. They saw a glimpse of who the Lord Jesus really was in his glory, and they were terrified. In Luke chapter 8, you might recall, the disciples were out out on the sea in a boat, and Jesus was in the lower hold, and he was asleep. And a storm comes up, a really bad storm, and the fishermen think that the ship is about to go down and they're going to die. And when they woke him in Luke chapter 8, verse 24, saying, Master, we're perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? What was their response when they watched Jesus do this? They were afraid. They were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. They saw a glimpse of the majesty and power 
of the divine Lord Jesus Christ. And just that little glimpse was enough to terrify them. They were afraid. Can I tell you this directly? You are not worshiping the one true living God if you are worshiping a God you don't fear. Peter's going to remind us this morning how important the fear of God is and why it is that we should fear him and exactly what that means. Look with me at verse 17. It'll be the focus of the rest of our time together this morning. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Now, if we're going to talk any more about the fear of God, we need to get a definition for what in the world we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. When you hear the word fear, what immediately comes to your mind? When I said that in the opening question, what things make you afraid, you had an image of what fear is. What is that kind of fear that you were thinking of? Okay, scared. Terror, is that a good word for it? It's that thing you feel when you're walking in the woods by yourself and all of a sudden a bear shows up, you know, right there. Fear, right? It's terror. It's the kind of it's a kind of a of a human response that causes us to want to do what? To run, to flee, to get away. It's a terror that says you're in danger. There's potential harm. There's potential that you could lose your life. There's potential pain. Get out of here. Now that's a certain kind of fear. God has hardwired us to experience that kind of fear, and it's a really good thing, right? I mean, how dumb would it be? You know, to live life without that. You're walking down the path and there's the grizzly. I'm not afraid of you. Yeah, just keep walking. Life is over quickly. That fear is a good thing. It causes us to get away when there's danger. It causes us to flee. It's a self-protection mechanism that God has built into us. A sort of a terror that causes us to want to flee. When we speak of the fear of God, this is not the fear we're talking about. This is not the biblical language. This is not what the words that the Bible uses to describe fear mean. It doesn't mean sheer terror, the kind of terror that you have when facing a bear in the woods or a roach flying across your room. This word fear, phobos, it's hard to, to, to get a clear definition that captures the whole nuance of the word, but the best we can do is this. It, it means a profound respect and awe. Profound respect and awe. And I don't like that because it doesn't capture everything fully. When you think of the word respect, I don't, it doesn't capture everything because respect just sounds like a benign word. And in our culture, frankly, re- respect is uh, on the decline in general. Whether it's children respecting their parents, citizens respecting law enforcement, respect is just on the students respecting teachers. It's just, it's not in fashion these days to be respectful. And that word is, it just kind of sounds benign. It sounds so unemotional. Okay, I respect you. This is not the kind of fear though. Fear does involve this idea of respect. It is a kind of, it is kind of the, um, a respect for someone of great power that you know has the power to do awful and great things. You respect them. But it's also combined with this idea of awe. When you think of awe, what do you think of? I think of something that just makes your jaw drop, right? It's like jaw dropping. Something You see something and you're just in awe. It's unbelievable. It's, it's too... It's too it's too unbelievable to put in words. You just, you're stunned at how awesome it is, right? 
So this word kind of fear, this fear of God captures both of these ideas. It's this profound respect and this jaw-dropping awe smashed together with more added. That's what's being described by this word fear. Just a combo of profound respect and staggering awe. But it's a kind of fear that does not drive us away, but drives us toward. It humbles us and motivates us. This is what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the fear of God. And it commands us to fear God. It commands us to come at Him with profound respect and staggering awe. Why should we do that? Why should we fear God? Why should we fear Him? Let me give you a quick list. This is kind of the biblical background to what Peter is wanting to communicate. We should fear God because He's awesome. We should fear God. We should stand in awe before Him because He is truly awesome. Now again, when you hear the word awesome, what does that dream up in your mind? When I think awesome, I think pizza or ice cream. Or that roller coaster I went on last week, that was truly awesome. I think when I got off with my son, we said, that was awesome. We use the word awesome sort of lightly in our vernacular here in our culture, right? All sorts of things are awesome. Pizza's awesome. Ice cream's awesome. Pastor Frank is awesome. All kinds of things are awesome. He's clapping, yeah. All sorts of things are awesome. The movie we just saw last week, this is awesome. We've used that word in that regard so often that the word awesome kind of loses its, its luster. When we think of God as being awesome, don't think pizza awesome or ice cream awesome. Think earthquake awesome. Think earthquake awesome. Have you ever, how many of you have ever been in an earthquake? Okay, so some of you have been in an earthquake. So you understand what I'm talking about when I say earthquake awesome. I'm talking about something that shakes the entire ground. And makes you stand in awe of the raw power and the raw event that's going on. It is awesome. Or maybe those of you who've never experienced an earthquake, you've lived here in Charleston long enough, you've been around when hurricanes come through, and you, and you think in terms of a hurricane with 100 mile an hour winds and tornadoes that blow through and wipe out a forest in a second. That kind of awesome. That's the kind of awesome we're talking about when we say God is awesome. He's not pizza awesome. He's earthquake awesome. He is hurricane awesome. He's not a small little insignificant God that you can control. Listen to Psalm 97, verses 2 through 5. As the psalmist describes God, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. That's a description of an awesome God. If the mountains melt like wax in his presence, how much more should we? If we could just catch a little slight glimpse of the glory and majesty and power and holiness of our almighty God, we would understand what awesome is and it would drive us to our face before him. It would melt us. He is awesome. We should fear God because he's awesome. 
We should fear God because He's the creator of all men and the creator of all things. We should fear Him because He's made everything that we know, including us. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord Himself is God. It's He who made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. John 1, 3, All things came into being, how? Through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that's come into being. God has made everything. He is our Creator. He is the one who made us and made everything that there is to be known. He is awesome. And not only did He make everything, He's the sustainer of everything. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Not only has God made everything, but He's holding it all together. And if at any moment God ceased to exist, you and I would cease to exist. And everything that we know in creation would cease to exist. Because He made it and He holds it together. And He's sovereign over it all. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He's made it all. He sustains it all. And He does whatever He wants with it. And nobody can question Him. Psalm 103.19 The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. He is infinitely superior to anyone and anything. Listen to Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. The question is this. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? What's the answer to that question? There is no one. There is nothing like God. Isaiah chapter 40 is worth reading. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can follow along. If you turn your Bible, it gets your blood moving, keeps you awake, all that good stuff too. Isaiah 40, verse 12 and following. Listen to this description of God. Speaking of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. (laughs) Let's just pause right there. What are all of humanity put together compared to God? A drip in the bucket, dust on a scale. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. Emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will uh, not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? 
Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out his heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness. Does that make you feel better about the election? Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. That is an awesome God, my friends. That is a God to be feared. A God who cast every star into the sky and not one is out of place. A God who, who raises up people, who raises up rulers and simply blows on him and they wither away and are gone. The best that the earth has to offer cannot even stand the breath of Almighty God. Even a casual consideration of these things should drive us to cry out like Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it's your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Do you get the point? God is worthy of fear. He is an awesome and mighty God. And fearing Him is the only reasonable response We should fear Him because given who He is and what He has done, it is totally insane, absolutely absurd not to. Let me ask you, do you truly fear God? When you think of God, what kind of thoughts come to your mind? Too often we think of Him as some senile grandpa in the sky who just overlooks all of our sin and gives us treats when we come for a visit. You better understand quickly, that's not God. That is not the God of this universe. That is not the God who created you. That is not the God who cast the stars into the sky, who carved out the seas and rose up the mountains. That is not the God who sustains the world. That is not the God who breathed life into you and me. He is not a senile grandfather in the sky. He is awesome and he is mighty. And to be exposed to the the slightest little sliver of his glory and power and might would drive us to our knees on our face before him. We live in fear of God because he's an awesome God. And it's the only rational response to one like him. This is all the backdrop to what Peter is arguing in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says we're to live our lives here in fear. All of that is this backdrop of the fear of God that's been being painted from Genesis all the way to Peter's day. It's what they understood when they read his letter when he said to them, you need to live your life in fear. It was taken for granted in some ways in Peter's day. It's largely lost altogether in ours. Peter goes on to give us some some more specific sort of reasons why we should live our lives in a constant state of fearing God. 
the first thing he tells us in First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and following is that we should live in fear of God because we have a father who disciplines his children. We have a father who disciplines his children. Would help if I was in First Peter, not James, wouldn't it? All right, there we go. James 1.17 does not say the same thing. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter speaks here of God as a father. And that imagery of that word and the imagery of that title is very distinct. I mean, you and I had fathers, I assume, right? Maybe you didn't grow up with your father. I grew up with my father. And so it's easy for me to understand this relationship of father and child. There was, a, in my life, a, a, a fear of my father. Now, he's here today, and you'll find him to be totally not scary at all. Probably one of the nicest people you ever meet. And you'll not get out of here without him finding out who you are, probably, and meeting you and smiling at you and talking to you. Very, very non-intimidating. But I grew up with a healthy respect and awe of my father. He instilled that to me from, in me from when I was young. I understood that there were things that he expected and things that he did not expect. And I knew my father loved me, but I also had a healthy fear of him. And that, that motivated me in my life in various sorts of ways. I can remember times when there was temptation to sin right in front of me. And in the back of my mind, what if my dad catches me? What if he catches? What if he finds out? I'm toast. I knew that. It was a fear that didn't drive me from him, but it was a fear that was based out of love, a a father-son relationship, a a parent-child relationship. I want to instill a healthy fear in my son. I want him to understand that, that there's right and there's wrong, that there are consequences for wrong. And whenever there's temptation in front of his eyes, I want there to be a healthy fear in his mind. Because I understand in doing that, I'm modeling for him how he's going to view God later. Because God is like a father who disciplines his children. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you at sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Listen, the love of the Lord is real, but the discipline of the Lord is real as well. The love of the Lord does not motivate him to overlook sin and act as though it doesn't matter. The love of the Lord motivates him to bring discipline in our lives when we sin against him. Old Testament, think Jonah, right? If you know any Old Testament story, you know Jonah, right? What's going on with Jonah? Okay. God says, go that way. Jonah says, roger that, God, I'm going this way. You want me to go to those people? I'm going there. And he gets in his boat and he gets in a boat and heads the opposite direction from the Lord. And what does the Lord do to that man? Well, he hurls a storm at him, the text tells us, in the ship. And the net result of the storm is Jonah goes overboard and finds himself in the belly of a great fish. And in the belly of that great fish, the Lord reminds him that it's best to do what God tells you to do the first time. Or as I tell my son, quickly and cheerfully. 
quickly and cheerfully. Two things we shouldn't think of. Obedience, right? Quickly and cheerfully. Do what I ask you to do quickly and cheerfully. And it goes with the Lord, right? What do we do when the Lord tells us to do something? You best do it quickly and do it cheerfully. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves. You run from the Lord. He'll discipline you. He'll get you. He'll chase you down. And He'll bring circumstances into our lives that will get our attention. And depending on how stubborn we are and how far we're willing to run, that will determine, I think, the intensity to which he brings the discipline. The further we run, the more stubborn we are, the more painful the Lord has to bring discipline into our life to wake us up. Jonah was pretty stubborn, ends up in a fish. Think Israel in the Old Testament. Israel understood the love of God. God had chosen them and poured out His love and grace and mercy on them time and time again. But time and time again, they rebelled against Him. And whenever they rebelled, what does the Lord do? The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Say that with me. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. He's a Father who disciplines His children. We're to live our lives here in fear of the Lord because we understand that to disobey Him, to defy Him, to rebel against Him brings into our lives His fatherly discipline. And so the fear of God here in Peter is presented to us as a motivator to obey God so that we might enjoy God's blessing rather than His discipline. Why do we live lives of fear? Why do we fear the Lord in our lives? Why do we live lives that are marked by a a, a pronounced respect and an incredible awe before God? Because we have great respect for Him and we have great awe for His power and we understand that He's a Heavenly Father who will discipline us if we rebel. Peter wants his his hearers to remember that. And he wants it to, to motivate them to live life a certain way. That's the whole point. Live your lives in The fear of the Lord while you're here. Live your life that way. Live your life daily in awe and respect for the Lord. Because you understand, first and foremost, that He's he's your Father. And as as your Father, He will discipline you if you don't. But He tells us something further. We live our lives in fear. First, because we have a Father who disciplines His children. But secondly, because the one who is our Father is also our judge, He tells us, right? If you call on and if you call on him as father who does what? Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with fear. We call on him as father, but the one who is our father is also our judge. Do you understand Peter is using two different titles for God here, Father and Judge? And he wants them to be thinking in two, in two different ways. Number one, he is your father who will discipline you, but even beyond that. He is your creator who one day you will stand before him and give an account for your life. It's another reason to live our lives in fear of God, isn't it? Because one day, this life that we're living will end for every one of us. There was a funeral in this building yesterday. Somebody's life ended. And if you go down around the corner to Live Oak Cemetery, there are funerals, there are burials every day. Somebody's life ended. One day, every one of our lives is going to come to an end. And the one whom we call Father, we will stand before Him as our judge. The Bible tells us all men will die and face judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians five ten, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in his glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11 through 12, a promise from the Lord. Behold, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. You understand that the Bible declares that our lives will come to an end. And when they come to an end, we're not annihilated. We don't cease to exist. We cease to exist in this realm on this earth, navigating with each other. But the Bible makes clear when this life comes to an end, we will stand before the one who created us, and there will be judgment. And you notice in every one of those passages, it was, it was incredibly individual. Did you catch that? Second Corinthians, For we must all appear before the judgment, so that each one may be recompensed. Matthew 16, He will repay each person according to what he's done. Revelation 20, to repay everyone for what he has done. It's very individual. This is not group judgment. It's individual. Listen, what Peter is saying is that backdrop that we painted at the beginning of the fear of God. The God that we read about in Isaiah chapter 40. The God who who slung the stars into the heavens. The God who carved out the earth and who created everything. The God uh, from, from whose throne lightning and fire goes forth. The God before whom all of the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. The God before whom every, even the strongest, most powerful ruler that's ever ruled any people on this planet can't even stand the breath of God before he withers. That God is the God who created us, and it's that God before whom we'll stand and give an account for our lives. And there is no dodging that judgment. There is no way around it. The one who breathed life into us, we will stand before him one day and give an account, an individual account for what we have done. Peter says you need to understand that because he's a judge who judges impartially. He doesn't treat people differently. He judges everyone completely impartially. And Peter's saying, listen, you need to live your life in fear because you understand you have a father who will discipline you now, but that father is also going to be your judge that you'll stand before one day and give an account for your life. But then in verse 18, listen to what he says. <clears throat> There's a third thing. We have a father who will discipline us, but that father is also going to be our judge. But listen to what he says in verses 18 through 21. He says, the one who is our judge is also our redeemer. God who judges impartially, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Get this. You see Peter's flow of thought here? Three reasons why we should live in fear of God in our lives right now. Because we have a father who judges his children. That father is also our judge. 
when our life comes to an end. But that judge is also our redeemer. That word redeemed, some, depending on the translation you're reading, it could be translated ransomed. Same meaning either way. It means to purchase release by paying a ransom or to deliver by the payment of a price. It speaks of slavery was the backdrop of, of the New Testament. So a slave could be purchased, his freedom could be purchased with gold or silver. Or prisoners of war could be purchased back by gold or silver. And it could be ransomed, they could be redeemed. That was that word. And Peter is saying here, listen, the God who is your father, who disciplines you, is also your judge, but he's also your redeemer. The one who you'll stand before in judgment has gone out of his way to purchase you back for himself. That's astounding, isn't it? He's purchased you. He has paid a price for you. He has paid a great price so that when you stand before Him, you can stand before Him justified and not condemned. He's redeemed you from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You know what futile means, right? Empty, worthless, vain. Peter is saying to these believers, listen, before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, before God Almighty redeemed you through the blood of Jesus, you lived a life. And that life, when it comes to value at the end of the day, was pretty worthless. It was vain. It was empty. You chased all the things of this world. You chased after gold and silver. You chased after popularity and prestige. You chased after the, the, uh, the smile of other people. You chased after power. You chased after all the things the world holds up as valuable. And all of that pursuit was absolutely futile because when you stand before God at the end as your judge, none of that will matter. None of that will matter. You understand if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never been redeemed by Almighty God, you're living for something, but whatever it is you're living for at the end of your life will turn out to be worthless. It'll be futile. When you stand before God as your judge, you're going to hold up your career, look how, look how Look how, look how well I did in my career. It's futile. You're going to hold up your, your savings account, your, your IRA, your, your retirement. Look how much money I've accumulated, God. It's worthless. I was beautiful. Look at how many people admired me. Futile. And Peter's saying, listen, you live for all those futile, worthless things, but God has redeemed you. He's redeemed you from a lifetime of chasing worthless things. And he's given your life a new set of values. You now live for things that last. You now live for things that are eternal. You now live for things that when you stand before God as your judge will have eternal value. It says God's redeemed you from that kind of a wasted life. And he's not redeemed you with perishable things. He's not paid the price for you with gold or silver. He's paid the price for you. With the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Silver and gold were the currency of Peter's day. You could get anything if you had enough silver and gold. And it's the currency of our day. You have enough money, you can get just about anything. Right? Is that fair to say? Nod your head. If you have enough money, you can get just about anything. Anything you want. Money is the most precious commodity in our culture. It drives everything. And people will do almost anything for money. There was a book written a number of years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. And in that book, the author presented some statistics from a, from a, uh, a survey that was done. And the simple question in the survey is this. What would you do 
What would you be willing to do for $10 million? Now I want you to stop and think for a second. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? Let me give you some of the answers and the percentages and see if you can guess them. Out of a survey asking the question, what would you do for $10 million? How many, what percentage of people in response do you think would, would abandon their entire family? Get a number in your head. 25%. 25% surveyed said for $10 million they'd abandon their families. How many do you think would abandon their church? Now, I think this statistic is way wrong. It's 25%. I'm thinking more like 98%. I can find another church, right, Pastor Frank? $10 million. What percentage would become a prostitute for a week? 23%. What percentage would give up their American citizenship? 16%. Let's get personal. How many would leave their spouse for $10 million? 16%. How many would withhold testimony testimony and allow a murderer to go free? 10%. How many would kill a stranger? For $10 million, 7%. How many would put their children up for adoption? I, I understand what your parents are thinking. Depends on what day you offer. I understand. <laughs> Depends on the day. I'm, I'm, I get it. Look at this. 3% of the people who answered this said they would put their children up for adoption for $10 bucks. I get it. You know, kids can be frustrating. But you wouldn't put your children up for adoption for any amount of money. That's what people will do for silver and gold. Which at the end of the day also is worthless when we stand before God. Peter says, you've been redeemed by something so much more valuable than 10 million bucks. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. The God who is your father who disciplines you is the God who's going to be your judge at the end of your life. But the God who's going to be your judge at the end of your life is that awesome God who, all those things in Isaiah 40, is also the God who sent his own beloved son to live and to shed his blood on a cross that you and I might be saved from God's wrath. That you and I might be saved in that moment when we stand before him as our judge. That we may be able to stand before him redeemed and justified before him. So that we might stand before him and not be the recipient of his eternal wrath on our sin. But that we might be the the recipient of his eternal grace. But the price was high. It's the life of his own son. When you hear the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ or the blood of Christ... Just think of the whole atoning death of Jesus for you. When it all comes down to it, why should we live in fear? Why should we live lives that are marked by a a pronounced respect and staggering awe of our God? Because He disciplines us like a father. Because one day we're going to give an account for every word and every action when we stand before Him. 
but even further because the one whom we give an account to has paid an infinitely high price to redeem us. Do you understand what God has paid in, as far as a price that you might be redeemed? If you're a Christian here this morning, do you understand how important, how high that price was? You know, if you're a parent, you understand this, right? You ever get your kid a, an expensive toy only to have them, you know, five minutes smash it against the ground? You ever had that right? And you look at him and you say, do you not know? What are you doing? I paid a lot of money for that thing. He doesn't care. Why? He didn't pay that money for it. He didn't pay the price. So he doesn't value it. Sometimes we treat, we treat the Lord that way. He has paid an infinitely high price for our redemption. The blood of his very own son. The blood of his very own son. That we might be saved. That we might be redeemed. Peter says at the end of the day, you want to know why you should live a holy life marked with a healthy fear of God? He says, look at the cross. Look at the cross and there's your answer. Look at the shredded body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this precious blood being shed on the cross. Look at the agony in his eyes. Look at the price God has paid to redeem you from a worthless, vain, and futile life that you used to live. That should motivate us to live with a healthy fear of God, a holy life and fear of Him. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, You've never come to a place in your life where you've committed your, yourself to Him, where you've confessed your sin, repented of that, and entrusted your life to Him from that day forward. If you've never done that, then the fear of God means something altogether different. It should mean sheer terror, the kind of terror intensely worse than the bear in the forest. Because you too, at the end of your life, will stand before your Creator and give an account. And the Bible says, right at this moment, you're positioned as his enemy. And what's awaiting you on that day is the full wrath that he has to offer that's been stored up since the beginning of your life, building every time you've sinned and rebelled against him, waiting to be poured out upon your head eternally in a place called hell. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should fear God. And if you don't, the Bible says you're a fool. Because at the last day you'll stand before him. And it will be abundantly clear to all what a fool you've been. But you don't have to, you don't have to experience that. Because the Bible says at this very moment, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was given on the cross for your sin, stands before you with an open invitation. Come to me and I will give you rest. Eat of me and you'll never hunger again. Drink of, the, of, of me and you'll never thirst again. Repent of your sin and entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ today. And He'll redeem you. And He'll become for you, not your judge as far as your judge giving you the wrath of God, but He'll become for you your Father. Your Father. If you're a Christian here this morning and you've been living with a flippant attitude toward your God, you need to repent of that today. And you need to pray that God would give you a healthy fear of Him in your heart. An appropriate awe and respect of Him. He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be taken lightly. He is not to be approached casually and flippantly as though He's no one important. He's the God of the universe. And even though He's our Father, He matters. Let's pray together. 
God, we corporately as believers confess before you that we approach you far too casually. We're comfortable talking about loving you. We're comfortable talking about serving you. But we've forgotten what it is to fear you. We've watered you down into our minds into some kind of benevolent best buddy or senile grandfather or pal that we hang out with on the weekends. But you are not those things. You are the exalted God of the universe who has created all things and before whom all the inhabitants of the earth are but mere dust on a scale. Grasshoppers. You are the God who's created all things and sustains everything, every moment, including the very breath we breathe at this second. Oh, God, help us to see who you are. May we be astounded by your awesomeness. May we be astounded once again in awe of who you are. And further in awe that you would care about anyone like us. And may we be deeply awestruck by the fact that one such as you would send your own son to die for us. To shed his blood for us. That at the last day we might be judged not guilty and granted eternal life with you. Awaken us to a fresh awe of you, Lord. For that man, for that woman who's here, who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior by your son, Jesus. I pray that you would strike their hearts with a sheer terror of you. That they wouldn't be able to even sleep tonight, oh God. Because they're struck by who you are. And they understand that the date is quickly approaching when they'll stand before you. I pray that that fear would drive them to you this morning would drive them to the cross where they'd see the blood of your Son shed on their behalf and then by faith and repentance place their trust in you. Be redeemed. May that even be the miracle you work in these quiet moments. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Perhaps you want someone to pray with you to pray with you to pray with you to Pray with you too.